0: Books about heavy equipment are, unfortunately, few and far between. And good books about heavy equipment are about as common as hen's teeth. But a new book is about to be added to the industry pantheon. It's written by David Wiley, an author who already has two previous equipment-related books under his belt. The new book, Earth Movers in Europe and Australia, comprises 72,000 words and almost 500 photos. And it covers iconic machines including the Komatsu PC7000 11, the Liebherr R9800, the Terex TR100 Rigid Hauler, and the DMAG H485. With a limited edition book now on sale, I caught up with the author David Wiley to find out more. And I started by asking him how he came to be writing about some of the biggest and most impressive earth moving machines the world has ever seen.
1: Yeah, well, thanks uh, for inviting me on the show, Mark. Uh, first of all, yeah, my uh, kind of background uh, started really with my uh, dad working for Hudon uh, Plant Hire. Um, it was actually Victor Wilson, which is part of the children's stewart Group, and at the time he was driving HiMac 580Cs, so I've got a little model there, as you can see in the background of one, to remind me of that. And um, and then he moved on to Cat 225s, 235s, 255s, etc. So, as I was growing up in the 70s, um, he was buying construction news, and I was reading all the articles and, um, you know, collecting the big JCB posters that used to come out, which are absolutely fabulous, unfortunately I don't have any of those left. Um, so um, I've always had an interest uh, in plant machinery, uh, with that kind of background, and um, but I decided to become a vehicle engineer, so um, I never got really into the operating side of that. But uh, I think uh, my uh, apprenticeship kind of helped me uh, do what I do now as a mechanical sort of machinery photojournalist. So,
0: So you have a new book just about to hit the shelves. How long has that book actually been in the making?
1: Uh, Well, I went out to Australia in um, 2020. So, it seems like a dark and distant memory now. But it was just before... um, and I was out there just as sort of COVID was um, kind of coming to fruition, if you like, big time. And um, we kind of had to leave Australia a week early because uh, flights were starting to get canceled and all the rest of it. But we had a fantastic time out in Australia. And um, so it really started from there. And then once I came back, working we of in lockdown, and I started um, doing a little bit some pieces to the book then, but really was kind of trying to drive some material for earth movers, etc. Uh, some historic stories so um, but really in the last six months um I really kind of got in the gear with it and so I, I would say in all it's about 18 months it's taken me to put the book together but in the last six months I've really driven it forward because I've got the time to do it so working nights and weekends as well so
0: I'm sure obviously this isn't your first book um what what did you learn from previous books? I know I've I've written a bunch over the over the years, and I seem to learn from each and every one. So, what did you learn from your previous outings as an author?
1: Yeah, I think one of the biggest learning points actually from the last two books is to make sure that it's properly, um, you know, uh, kind of checked uh, um, uh, all the spelling, etc. Which is a bit difficult when you're writing uh, seventy two thousand words in the new book. Um, so I took uh, a great deal of time uh, over that, um, countless days, in fact, um, to do that. And also, um, just really a little big thing because there's nearly 500 images in this book. It's it's actually making sure you've got the right images to tell the story and where they're all placed. So if you've never, for people who have never written a book, it's quite a lot of. Um, Uh, planning and organising where what you're going to write and where you're going to place the images within a book and then it's kind of over to the the typesetting team and to be honest I had a great typesetter this time round it's an independent guy a guy called John Chandler who was absolutely fantastic brought new ideas, new innovations to how the book should look etc and um, he came highly recommended from my printer which is CPI, Anthony Rowe they're a UK one of the, the kind of biggest um, printers in in Europe, so he came highly recommended. Um, so, on uh, all in all, working with John, it was a it was a brilliant experience as we built up the chapters and we built up the book over about two weeks.
0: It's interesting you should mention the um, typesetter and the printer, because obviously your name is the name that appears on the spine, but no book is, is created completely in isolation. What what help have you had over the years with your books, and, and perhaps more specifically with the latest book?
1: Yeah. So I think maybe even go back to Boomer 2019 in terms of support. So um, the reason I went out to Australia, actually, is uh, I met up with a chap called Roy Potter. Peter, who was um, the marketing director for a company called Mineware, which is a part of the Komatsu family. So they have probably, arguably one of the best dig guidance, uh, mine compliance and payload management systems I've ever seen anywhere in the world. And it comes factory fitted onto the big hydraulic mining excavators that are made in Dusseldorf, uh, Komatsu factory. So um, I had a chance meeting with him. I was actually packing up a PC-8000 model at the time that I purchased there. And then um, we got talking and they took me around the, um, he took me around the mine, the main wear, um product, actually on stand on the PC-4000 at the time. And I was just blown away within half an hour of what he was telling me. And it became quickly apparent that actually, I should actually go and see it. an action in the real world. And between the two of us, we quickly agreed that this would happen, um, but, Although the decision to go out to Australia took about three days to to work that bit out, Uh, Roy and his team actually took nine months to organise all the visits for me to visit these um, large uh, tier one uh, mining contractors. And you've probably perhaps maybe noticed, maybe not, but there's not a lot of books or material um, written about Australian mines. Because they're quite private and they like to keep themselves to themselves so i was hugely honored and privileged to be able to spend some time uh, with roy and his team and see his customers uh, use their mainware uh, uh,
0: equipment that was actually going to be one of my key questions because obviously i i mean i move in roughly the same circles as you you tend to concentrate on the heavy end and i do the demolition end but gaining access to mines and quarries is notoriously difficult Obviously, you you had a foot in the door as a result of your connections with Komatsu, but how, just how easy did you find that?
1: Yeah, um, I think I've kind of built up over the sort of twelve years that I've been working with earth movers. I mean, for example, you've maybe noticed I've done a huge amount with banks mining in the UK. Um, so much so that um, Jim Donnelly, who was the operations director for banks actually wrote the foreword of my second book. Um, So I think it's best summed up, it's all about trusted relationships. Um, I think you can get on site as a photojournalist if you know you're going to do a good, thorough, independent, well-researched story about what they do, how professional they are, uh, and the advances they make with modern equipment, and how each of the mine operations or quarries are constantly trying to lower their CO2 uh, carbon footprint um, and work in a very safe and environmentally conscious manner and probably none more so than my experience than actually Banks Mining, who are now called Banks Infrastructure. Um, so they're a fantastic company and I've just kind of really built up a reputation with that. And it was interesting when I met Roy actually at, um, at Bowmer. Uh, when I introduced myself, he immediately knew who I was because all the Komatsu guys were talking about me. And um, you just kind of get blown away sometimes with um, how your reputation goes around the world. And,
0: you know, people know you who you have never met. I find it quite incredible. Yeah, my my reputation precedes me for possibly different reasons, I have to say. Um, We've (laughs) we've mentioned the fact that you've been to Australia, but this is a, a European and Australian book. Looking back at it, and obviously you've just put it to bed, what were the standout mines or quarries from the book, as far as you're concerned, from you know an author, journalistic point of view?
1: Yeah, I think kind of going back to the mineware thing again, I think principally that's one of the reasons to go out to, um, to Australia, but I did more when I was there than just that. So for me, the big objective actually was to see a PC 7000 in action um you're only ever really going to see those in australia or north america although i believe there's be one more a new one working out in finland so it's it is kind of in europe but um i've not seen it yet and uh, there was a bit of history to that so when i first started out with Earth movers in 2010 i got to the dusseldorf factory in 2012 and that was a great tour met a lot of nice people there but actually i i was told off the record, that there was a new PC 7000 coming, and I uh, was to keep it uh, completely under ramps, which I did. So that's part of this trusted relationship that you, you can acquire. And um, so, when we first saw it actually launch at Bowman 2016, um, so in 2019, I actually got 2019 2020, I actually got to see it in action, and uh, it's an incredible piece of kit uh, doing a 34 a 36 cubic meter bucket a 700 ton machine um and with the mineware wear system on it you know it can dig to an accuracy of 10 millimeter on a machine that size just the same as you know a 20 ton machine can in the uk here with the gps systems but uh, the payload management system is absolutely critical and all the other um management information you get uh, from it when they're operating these big machines, I mean they, in, in Australia they talk about a thing called um, hang time, so that's when the excavators got a loaded bucket and it's sitting in the air uh, waiting for a dump truck to uh, spot underneath it, so they manage the hang time of these machines to the absolute second because they're pretty much working 24-7, the machines are hot seated so operators are on them every four hours and they switch over. and. Um, So they watch all that as well, and they've got a thing called like a crib time. So when they have a break or a machine operator switch. So that was really impressive to see the amount of management information you can get from the mineware system. And um, the operators also have kind of scorecards as well. And it's a bit like um, a Formula One team, like a racing driver trying to get pole position. The operators really like to be the best at the mine site. To be the most compliant operator, the most efficient, and actually, there's stress gauges on these machines as well that Mineware can see. So, not only do the operators work the machines hard, but not overly hard, that impacts on maintenance and downtime and things like that. So, they get a scorecard every month, and um, you know, they love to be at the top of the scorecard, really. So, that was all fascinating to see.
0: <clears throat> Obviously, one of the, the machines that took you to Australia in the first place was that PC-7000, and I can certainly understand your um, desire to see that. But, you know, in your travels, what's, what was the most impressive or memorable machine that you saw in the build-up to this book?
1: Um, yeah, I think it would be the PC-7000. The other thing that was really memorable was actually was a visit to a, a place called Komatsu-Wakehold, which is just outside Brisbane and this is a very large uh, main hub for uh, mining support uh, in Australia and they take the big um, 290 ton capacity uh, Komatsu 930Es uh, which are built in America and they bring them in kit form and they build them actually at uh, at Waco and then they'll transport them uh, you know uh, in Australia and to see these um, you know big trucks getting built up uh, and and basically a workshop uh, is quite incredible I mean this workshop is one of the smoothest floors I've ever seen in my life because the actual the truck frames sit on what we probably called air jacks like air float systems which apparently they tell me this is like a 300 ton truck empty that they can actually push with their hand it glides along like a hovercraft thing on this flat floor. Um, so that was just mind blowing. And actually, they have a, like, an oil sampling facility as well there that um, we got to see. So, um, yeah, that. And I think the other thing that, although I didn't actually see it in Australia, sort of when I came back from Australia, I started working with a, a big um, contractor called uh, National Group. They actually bought over Wolf Mining. And Wolf Mining were the first company in the world to have the, to deploy the first fully semi autonomous uh, CAT D11Ts in a mining operation on a bulk push situation where the operator was sitting, or two operators sitting basically a porter cabin on site and an air conditioned room and a CAT dozer seat with all the controls and all the big monitors and screens like that. And um, basically they're driving one machine each but they're actually responsible for another three that are working themselves just constantly slot dosing backwards and forwards and they, they run for 23 and a half hours a day um they only stop
0: for fuel and oil I mean, incredible yeah I, I mean you've, you've mentioned you've mentioned places you've mentioned machines and you've mentioned technology just now you I guess you also get to meet an awful lot of people while you're researching a book of this nature were there any standout stories people wise yeah, um,
1: I was always fascinated with uh, the big DMAG 485, which is the largest hydraulic mining excavator uh, in the world at one point in 1986. And it landed in Scotland in Falkirk, at a mine site called Ruffcastle. Um And this was really the first really ultra class generation which led to the PC-8000. So over the last couple of years, I started researching it and to find pictures of that, Machine was a bit like hen's teeth, uh, but I've actually built up a really good collection now for this book. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is a bump. I bumped, uh, kind of got in contact with a, a chap uh, called Ron Austin. Now, Ron was the operator of the 485 for many a year uh, at Rough Castle, and he had a great collection of uh, photographs, etc., which he very kindly shared with me. And then I actually got in touch with um, the DMAG designer. Uh, Gert and um, he's now retired he was head of uh, DMAG um, design development in the 80s and he actually designed the DMAG 485 and then they went on to build even uh, bigger machines as well uh, out in the oil sands and through the connections with that he he shared some personal photographs me and one of the kind of stand out things for me when I, when I put it in the book was that when he designed the um, uh, a big uh, mining shovel for, I'm just trying to remember the name, I think it's, yeah, it's the H685SP, which was like a super version of the 485 for a company called Klemke and Sons, which is KMC Mining. They were so pleased with the performance and power and the bigger bucket of the machine, the oil sands application, they actually got a belt buckle made um, for key people and um, get, actually got one. And uh, I put it in a book, and it's all those little backstories that are in the book that I think make it fascinating. It's not just machines, but it's the people who made it happen that really drives me to write these books.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, it was it was the people in Demolition that attracted me to it, and that's exactly why I'm still there 30 years later.
1: Yeah. Um, the, other, the other person that's probably worth mentioning is a chap who um, is a guy called Alex Kelly. Now Alex, 95 now, but um, I first met Alex because he bought my first book five years ago, and it's the only handwritten fan mail I've ever received. Um, although Alex does still um, use WhatsApp and things like that, so he's not exactly uh, shy of using modern technology. But he actually, his his was a fascinating story, which I felt. Absolute had to go in the book. He started in Terex literally a month after the Muller factory opened up in uh, September 1950. So he started in October uh, as in a, like a trainee uh, inspection engineer, uh, quality control, and by 1978, I think it was, he was actually works manager. In other words, he was the MD of the company. That's under an American firm, that's the kind of terminology they used. And um, you know, he's still sharp attack. Uh, we took him back to the factory a couple of years ago to see uh, the Bridget Haller line and the articulated Holler line as well. So um getting some really good um images from him when he was there in nineteen fifty, um all the way through his career was absolutely fantastic and it's a really good story to tell. And one of the really things that and um, I must say, Mark, is that, you know, this book now will sit in the British Library forever and a day. So there's a historic record of Ron Austin, the design engineers, you know, and Alex Kelly for everybody to read forever and a day. And, um, and I think if you and it's good that they're in magazines, but if you, unless you put them into a book,
0: they could perhaps be lost forever. Your book comes at a very interesting time, I think. Um, obviously, we are standing on the very precipice of a major shift from diesel to electric or hydrogen. I realise some of the machines you've covered are already electric, although they've made the conversion. But did you ever get the feeling that you were marking something like the end of an era, going back to some of these old machines, like the, the D-Mag and that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, I think um, diesel engine technology's got a life left in it yet, um, but it was interesting to note that um, I just did a piece um, a couple of months ago where I was invited by Lieber Mining um, to sit on a video conference where uh, one of their big customers, uh, Foursquare Group, FMG, big uh, iron ore mining uh, company out in Western Australia, had bought over Williams Advanced Engineering and that mining company had decided to build their own hydrogen fuel cell. power pack but they were actually looking for a, um, a vehicle technology partner so they decided to partner with Lieber so between the two of them and this is the incredible thing they've actually there's two family companies and I think that's the important thing both of the family company leaders have decided that they will have a hydrogen powered haul truck I mean a 300 ton class haul truck running by 2025. That's only three years away.
0: Yeah, well, that I've been talking on my show about the uh, possibility of actually having some commercially available hydrogen machines at Belma this year. I think I was perhaps being a little bit pre- premature, but that's not far away at all, is it?
1: It isn't, actually. And I think probably with these family companies, because the, fam- the heads of the family have decided to do this, there's no shareholders involved. There's no probably backsliding on it. It's a done deal. The guys are going to do it.
0: I guess the other thing, and I know it keeps me in a job, but it keeps you in a job as well as an author. You know, when we do make that switch to hydrogen or biodiesel or whatever it might be, there's another book just waiting to happen there, isn't there? There is, yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, if you come back to Lieber again, there's a whole there's a whole lot of things there that are driving mines and main compliance in terms of lower CO2. I mean, for example, Lieber have got... Um, hundred ton class uh, on a trolley system just out in Austria which you know hopefully I'll be able to go and see it sometime. I think COVID um if it wasn't for that I'd already have covered it by now. But um I think probably as we get into later this year and then the next year there'll be an opportunity to go and see that operating and there's huge field fuel saving with the diesel electric combination. Uh, even down to the 100-ton class, so I think that possibly even in the UK you'll start to see trolley systems and some of the bigger mines um, where the haul road is pretty much fixed for the next six months to a year Um, and there'll be huge fuel savings on that and actually productivity savings because an electric haul truck on a trolley system is almost twice as fast as a diesel truck uh, hauling out the cut.
0: I guess the most important question of all um for those that don't have ready access to the british library where yeah. can people actually get a copy of your book david yeah well it
1: should be relatively simple they're all going to be sold and uh, sort of semi-distributed by me um so people can get me on facebook uh, at earthmovingimages.com or they can reach me at linkedin um just send me a note that they want to buy it i'll send them bank details pay for it Uh, name and address and then either I'll ship it direct or my uh, fulfilment partner which again should be CPI um, they're holding the bulk of the books for me um, and we just send it out and that's where we did the book number two as well I think it's also worth saying as well I never get a chance to sort of um, And forgot to sort of mention, which I shouldn't have done, that uh, you know, Peter Haddock, um, who wrote the foreword, and in terms of support, Peter's kind of been with me, you know, Peter, well, too, uh, right from the start. So, in 2010, when I started with Earth Movers, Peter was the first sort of PR person I'd ever met in my life, Uh, and um. You know he's been with me all this kind of time so i thought that you know given i was doing a third book it was appropriate to ask peter to do the foreword on it and he could sum up you know what the book was about and you know how i go about what i do and etc so i'm gratefully I'm very thankful for peter's support etc yeah but you know, to answer your question yeah it's the books available through me
0: and you will be appearing on Peter's own podcast, which I'm sure will be appearing on uh, LinkedIn because he's a big deal on, on LinkedIn at some point. You're actually speaking to him possibly the day after we're speaking, aren't you?
1: Yeah, I am indeed, yeah. Yeah, I've got a back schedule. It's, uh, it's been incredible sort of three days ever since I kind of put it on Facebook that the book's now here, so... I think I've got nearly 100 orders today. It's only 300 copies, limited edition. So, um, at this kind of run rate, it's going to sell out by Christmas, I think.
0: Fantastic. Well, congratulations on that. I guess the, the final question is um, are you done, or is there a book number four in the background?
1: Well, um, I think I've actually got another two books sitting on my PC right now. <laughs> I just need to pick the time to do it. I mean one of the things I was thinking about because of um, lockdown and um, you know it's probably difficult to get try and get on site I actually did quite a lot of work uh, sitting at home and decided to do some historical reports which were a lot of work but actually quite rewarding when you get into them and some of them are taking four or five days to put together compared to Two days with a normal story where you go inside for a day, you take all your pictures, you do your interview, and then you spend a day writing up. Some of these stories will take five days, um, just collecting all the information. So I've probably got a book about uh, classic historic mining machines, you, you know, Big D Mag, uh, Caterpillar, Lieber, etc. Um, yeah, so maybe that's one of the next books, and then I'll have a, a uh, another book and um, I'd like to get to North America to be honest and do the thing that I did in Australia perhaps next year so I'm up the no- next book I'll be movers in Europe and North America
0: watch this space uh, David look I-, I wish you every success with a new book congratulations on bringing it to fruition um, never easy to pull together a book of that nature in the first place but to do it in the midst of Covid Hats off to you. Um, I yeah. mean, I, I guess COVID does give you time to concentrate, but it does co- somewhat curtail travel, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, that's the bit there. So I'm really um, delighted with it. I'm trying to get it in shot here. You can see, <laughs> it's a fairly big book. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's 470 odd pages and it weighs 2.2 kilos. So um, I'm a fantastic uh front cover on it and i'm absolutely delighted to have another book i would never have thought i'd have produced three books in my life but here we are and i have and uh, what more can i say
0: fantastic stuff david you're an absolute star um obviously thank you for doing the book um because it is a, a historic record but thanks for all that you do for earthmovers as well um i, I do know you you bring a certain <coughs> perspective to the earthmovers um Magazine. Obviously, you know I'm a big mate of Nick Drew, um, and, and Nick is, is comes from the operator's perspective. But I think your your depth of knowledge and your history and all that kind of thing really puts a, a, a good spin on the uh, the magazine. So hats off to you, my friend. Um, I think you've done a fantastic job in both avenues of of your uh, journalistic life.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Mark. Uh, thanks for your kind words, and again, thanks for having me on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure.